Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Hello everyone and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show of the Society of Graduate Students. I'm Tyson Davis and I'm joined by my co-host Alex Mozinski. I'm happy to be here today and we are happy to be joined by uh, Steve Marty, who is actually doing his PhD in history. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, Steve. Uh, well, it's fitting that you're here today with us because it's Remembrance Day, and we were kind of hoping to have a, a really great Remembrance Day-centric episode of GradCast here. So why don't we start, I guess, by getting you to tell us a little bit about what the focus of your research uh, is. Yeah, so I study the First World War, uh, particularly the home fronts of Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. Uh, and what I look at are voluntary contributions to the war effort, uh, what it is that uh, people try to offer in support of the war, uh, particularly uh, when communities come together. Uh, and what I found is that generally when a bunch of people get together to give something uh, to the war effort, they tend to attach conditions onto it, which tell us a lot about how they understand uh, their place both within the nation and within the empire and how it is that they are trying to live out that relationship through their contribution to the war effort. So that's roughly what I'm up to. So uh, what do you mean by conditions? Like what kinds of conditions do people attach to the things that they're contributing? Yeah, so uh, it's kind of like when a donor bequeaths uh, money to a university for a scholarship, uh, Usually, when that scholarship gets posted, it'll have conditions like this has to be uh, a student who studies a particular subject or is involved with a particular uh, extracurricular activity or is of a particular um, cultural background. And that tells us then about what the donor's values are because that's what they've decided to do. Uh, so what we find are uh, groups uh, will... Uh, will want to gather funds to, to, say, purchase an ambulance for the war effort. And they'll say, uh, like, there's a, this, uh, this club in Innisfail, Alberta. They want to buy an ambulance for the Canadian Army. Uh, and the Canadian Army uses a, a Cadillac as their, the chassis upon which they, they have their motor ambulances. And they say, well, we're, we're sufficiently patriotic that we would like this to be a, a Canadian-manufactured ambulance, which is great for you know, the militia department who's getting a free ambulance, but it's terrible for the medical services because now they have this one oddball ambulance and no spare parts for it because their whole system is, is meant to, to have like a, a Cadillac, uh, and the whole imperial system is, is kind of faced with this challenge of potentially receiving one odd ambulance by a random manufacturer just because the donors wanted to buy a Canadian ambulance because they felt particularly Canadian. Uh, and so there's a bit of a negotiation between the donors and the defense authorities over should we accept this gift and, and respect what the, the donors wish, or uh, do we say, sorry, uh, you, you need to give us $2,000 and we'll buy an ambulance of our choosing and potentially lose the goodwill of the donor. Uh, so that's kind of the, the exchanges mm -hmm. that, that I, I see playing out in my research. Um, do you see this more co complex when you talk about sort of Canada and Australia? I, what was the other country? New Zealand? New Zealand, yeah. Uh, the complex demographics between both settler native and then in Canada you have the English and French backgrounds there and um do you have any like kind of thoughts about or 
uh, research done on like what happens in like the French communities or oh definitely yeah. or such? Yeah, so uh, the French is uh, the French communities are, are particular to Canada uh, and across the nation. French Canadians are a minority uh, within Quebec. They're still a majority, so um, there's a difference between how French Canadians in Quebec m- contribute to the war effort versus French Canadian communities outside of Quebec. Uh, so there are communities in in Western Canada that are trying to raise a French Canadian battalion. Uh, and so they need about 900 volunteers to raise this battalion, and it'll be the the 233rd Battalion uh, Canadien Français du Nord West. Um, and they're struggling to raise to to fill the ranks. Uh, and they're uh, as as the militia department is is trying to pressure them into to finally making a decision about whether or not they're actually going to have this, they're increasingly fearful that they'll be lumped in with a French-Canadian battalion from Quebec uh, because then they, they lose the identity of being French-Canadians of Western Canada uh, because the French-Canadians of Western Canada are particularly concerned about demonstrating their participation in the war because uh, they're afraid that uh, they might be marginalized for not participating in the war. Uh, in 1913, the year before the war, uh, Ontario had passed um, Re- uh, Regulation 17, which restricted uh, Engl- or French language education within the province. And all the uh, French-Canadian communities outside of Quebec are fearful of similar uh, Regulations that are going to restrict French language rights outside of Quebec, and so one of the ways that they try to 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 mitigate this is by making these visible contributions to the war effort. Uh, and so it's interesting in, in Canada that French Canadian communities outside of Quebec are particularly concerned about uh, maintaining a, a separate identity from Quebec for that reason. Though I'm assuming, like for like logistical reasons, they would probably try to keep all of the francophone. Military, like all the part, all the soldiers who are speaking French in the same umbrella, mm-hmm. which probably meant stuffing them under some Quebecois general or something or other, right? Yeah, so that's yeah. exactly what happened. The uh, uh, the two hundred and thirty third battalion was broken up, and it was fed into the uh, battalion from French Canada, uh, and so uh, their officers put up quite a bit of a fight. I think two of them were uh, displayed some behavior that was. I guess what the military authorities would call insubordinate. Uh, they tried to protest it, uh, but uh, you know, th- there's really nothing they could do, and so they they were lumped into this uh, French Canadian battalion from Quebec, and and that was kind of the end of it. Um, yeah. I heard you mention something about uh, Canadian Aboriginals mm-hmm. uh, suffered s- in similar ways. Um, as a Canadian Aboriginal, I just wanted to hear some more about that. So, is it similar to the French ordeal? Um, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that's interesting is uh, the the Department of Militia in 1915 tries to get civilians to bear the cost of recruiting by allowing uh, local communities the opportunity to raise their own battalions. And so that's why we have French-Canadian battalions starting up in Western Canada. There's also a Scandinavian battalion. Uh, but there is uh, a color bar on this policy that uh, there's uh, the Japanese community in Quebec, or sorry, in Vancouver, try to raise a battalion, and it comes back that uh, Japanese Canadians are allowed to enlist, but not allowed to form anything larger than a company. And the same answer comes back from uh, African communities, uh, and the same thing comes back for most 
efforts to raise uh, a First Nations unit. Uh, there are some interesting examples, the 107th Battalion, I think in Regina, and the 114th, which was raised uh, in Bramford, uh, are largely uh, First Nations and to a certain extent uh, can demonstrate uh, certain kind of within their paraphernalia that they are uh, a First Nations battalion. So the 114th, uh, their cap badge uh, has two cross tomahawks on the bottom to, to show that they are uh, at least partly uh, a First Nations battalion. Cool. And um, was the experience similar for Aborigines and Maori people too? Oh, no. So it, uh, it changes completely. In Australia, the official policy is that uh, for uh, that... To qualify for military service, a person has to be, uh, and the, the, the exact rule is, of sufficiently uh, European parentage, which uh, the, uh, essentially means that uh, at least uh, during the first part of the war, it completely barred uh, Australian Aboriginals from enlisting. Uh, and in 1915-1916, when uh, they were low on recruits, they changed it to... Uh, Aboriginals who were uh, at least 50% uh, had at least one parent who was of European descent. Uh, but what that means is that uh, for Aboriginals to volunteer for service in Australia, uh, there's no opportunity to come together as a community and form a battalion like they could in Canada because it is decided at the level of the individual uh, and the medical officer will, uh, on when they do their medical inspection, that's, how they, that's when it's determined uh, what their parentage is. Uh, and there's an interesting case of uh, one uh, Aboriginal Australian soldier who, if you look through his service records, you'll have his uh, medical inspection form from the first time he tried to enlist it, and it says something like, uh, not fit for service on account of colour. Uh, and then uh, a year later, he, he tried to uh, enlist with a different recruiting office and uh, managed to, to, to get in. But on his in his uh, file, it still has that, that first uh, medical inspection record where it says that he was not eligible uh, because of his race. Wow. Um, I guess aside from, you know, total racism um was there any is there a reason that they would have had like on paper to try to justify doing that like what would be the rationale for barring people from joining the military because i mean you need as many able-bodied people as you can get uh well a lot of it does come down to to racism and i think what this really shows is that uh at least at that time the ideas of you know what it meant to be uh canada or what it meant to be australia uh, and uh, new zealand is is a separate case but it, it was constructed in terms of whiteness. Uh, one of the interesting kind of examples uh, that comes from the African community in Toronto, they try to raise a battalion uh, and the, the Department of Militia says, well, you can start by raising a platoon. Uh, so you have about 30, 30 volunteers that then have to fit into another battalion. Uh, and then the Department of Militia goes around to all the other units in Ontario saying, uh, we potentially have a platoon of Africans. Uh, would you be willing to take them in? Uh, and I think they send it out to about 70 battalions that are recruiting. All of them say no. Um, but 
the reasons that they they state uh, are not sort of what we would uh, assume as racist in the terms that they're seen as unfit for service. It's uh, the kind of racism that constructs their community in terms of whiteness. So uh, there's a battalion that says, you know, we are a battalion that is being raised in this community. Uh, there are no Africans in this community, so it would be uh, it would not be authentic for us to have uh, an African platoon because we are uh, a white community, uh, and that comes out uh, quite a few times. Uh, and so again, it's it's that kind of idea that uh, you know Canada and Australia are, are very much white nations, uh, and that's going to be reflected in in the their mobilization uh, that's really interesting because um i was always perplexed by those by like the strong racism that did happen in mm-hmm. canada and australia but yet i do know that world war one was if at least on the british side was fought largely by uh, a whole bunch of their soldiers from india and they had no trouble taking indian troops but it's but then again like i the the idea of defining canada as the white country kind of um explains that yeah uh i mean it's uh there's a bit more to it there are a lot of uh officers within uh the militia who encourage minorities to uh enlist and largely they see it as a as a means of assimilation and so uh you know there are a lot of people who believe that uh extending uh that that allowing first nations canadians to enlist uh, and indoctrinating them with military culture and and military discipline is going to be the way that first nations canadians can assimilate into uh sort of white canadian european society so um we see a lot of exclusion uh but uh, in canada there's a very kind of uh, there, there are no really clear policies. Everybody kind of does their own thing, uh, and so this is why we have some battalions of First Nations uh, that are that are able to 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 draw recruits. Uh, and it's largely to do with this idea that this is uh, at least the white officers believe that this is going to be a way to to assimilate First Nations, whereas the First Nations uh, who volunteer see this as their way of of gaining citizenship uh, by demonstrating their their service to the nation, and, and hopefully this will be rewarded uh, after the war. Okay. Wow, it baffles me that uh, a qualification to be a soldier is whiteness like did they have like a a picture on a wall and if you're darker than this picture you can enlist like that uh like in in the uh in the australian case like i said it it was that was the only place where it's clearly defined uh that uh you know a, a soldier had to be of sufficient european origin and it was left up to uh it was left up to the medical officers to decide uh you know some of them took it very seriously uh, i know that uh one uh, medical officer is noted to, uh, to to have said, you know, those are some of the darkest half-castes that I've ever seen. Uh, and obviously this being that uh, Aboriginals are claiming that they're half-Aboriginal to, to get in, and he's just, you know, kind of going along with it uh, and letting them, them enlist uh, regardless. Uh, so, yeah, there there is no uh, set color bar, but it's one of those things that uh, we find these odd cases of, of people enlisting despite that, uh, and then it's a question of how do we include them in, in, in the memory of the war afterwards. So, well, um, but getting back to sort of what the focus of your research is mm-hmm. a little bit, um, what other kinds of contributions, aside from either trying to form a battalion or a platoon or getting ambulances what other kinds of contributions did people make and what kinds of conditions have you have you seen across the board and i i guess to 
further that even more, um, between Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, um, what kind of differences did you see? Um, yeah. Uh, so one of the biggest things, or the, the two big things that I found are sock knitting and raising money. Uh, so uh, women in all three contexts knit a lot of socks and other you know, mittens and other comforts. Uh, what's interesting is when they get together as a group, uh, they'll kind of decide how it is that these socks are going to get overseas. Uh, and generally what we find is that there's a desire primarily to to send socks to the local soldiers. Um, and so, you know, you'll have women who knit socks as part of uh, the Red Cross, which is uh, an international organization, uh, and there will be a collection by the National Red Cross or the Provincial Red Cross for uh, a shipment of socks, and uh, a particular club will say, oh, well, they're asking for socks to be sent at, at like, a, a provincial level, but we're actually just going to send the socks to make sure that they go to, to our boys overseas. Uh, and generally, in Canada and New Zealand, there's nothing to stop that. Uh, Australia, uh, two of the states really try to centralize the war effort to make it rational and efficient. And so they try to get away from this idea of you only knit socks for the people that you know. Uh, and they try to uh, encourage people to contribute to statewide collections. Uh, and basically what they do is uh, they put controls on who is allowed to raise funds publicly. Uh, and if you are going to raise funds publicly, it has to be uh, contributed to one of the statewide funds. So there's, uh, you know, in South Australia, there's seven funds. There's the YMCA, the Red Cross, the South Australian Soldiers Fund, uh, and uh, the Trench Comforts Fund, and a couple of other ones. Uh, and if you're going to raise funds publicly, it has to go into one of those funds. Uh, and for people to send socks overseas, uh, this usually has to be done through an organization like the Trench Comforts Fund, which is going to uh, cover the cost of shipping. So they need to be able to raise funds to, to ship these socks overseas. And it's one of the ways in which the, uh, the, the government of South Australia tries to encourage people to send their socks to any South Australian soldier rather than just the people that you know. But there's quite a bit of pushback on this. Uh, a lot of people, you know, write to the, the State War Council saying, uh, you know, I have written letters to, to the people of, of Little Swamp, South Australia. None of them have received a single cigarette from the Trench Comforts Fund. So why should I give you, why should I s contribute to the Trench Comforts Fund when you're clearly not taking care of the soldiers of my community? Uh, and so there, there's quite a bit of pushback on this. And uh, one of the things that we see is that uh, the connection to the war is very much a, a local uh, community-driven uh, initiative where really as, as much as the war is a war of empire, a war fought across an ocean or two oceans in the case of Australia and New Zealand, uh, a lot of the people who contributed were really thinking about the people in their own communities. And um, zooming out a little bit, mm -hmm. you uh, in history, everything written is a conversation. You're responding to some people and you're saying some things. Mm -hmm. I'd like to know, like, what is kind of the main interest, like what was the question that you sought out to answer all those years ago when you started this project? And in the end, what are you trying to, what are you trying to, what contribution do you think you're making? Yeah, um, like I just kind of started, uh, I was always kind of perplexed by uh, I guess just Canadian identity in general. Uh, like what does it mean to be Canadian? Uh, and I was, I had a, an interest in the First World War from my undergrad degree, uh, and going into through my master's, I, I was struck by the similarities uh, in 
Australian, Canadian, and New Zealand memory of the First World War as it being kind of the war that defined that nation. Uh, and that was kind of what I started looking into, uh, is kind of how identity is, is constructed or discovered over the course of the war. Um, and then I, I kind of got into uh, these the sources of uh, voluntary contributions, and I found all these kind of nitty details of, of these negotiations and these conditions of people saying, "This is these are the terms by which I'll contribute to the war effort," uh, and that has kind of veered me into into that direction. Uh, I hope my my overall research will kind of um, help complicate the uh, the how it is that we understand identity in the settler colonies of of, of the British Empire. Um, we tend to see the First World War as a, as a transition from colony to nation, but uh, like, you know, as I was just saying, this, this big war of empire for a lot of people was just something for the community. Uh, and it says something that English Canadians can, can say, we're only doing this for our community, uh, but French Canadians, uh, you know, uh, indigenous Canadians or, or, uh, and, and, and migrant communities have a much different set of frameworks that they have to, to work through in order to, to contribute to the war effort. So it really kind of uh, complicates uh, how it is that Canadian society comes out of the First World War, and it tells us a lot about how it is that uh, Canada works as a, as a settler colony, and, and for the same for New Zealand and Australia. Sorry to shift gears a little. Sure. I saw uh, one of these Ask the People kind of articles in the Gazette, um, and I thought I'd bring it up. Do you think Remembrance Day should be a recognized like public holiday? So should we actually be here today? Right. What do you think? Uh, well, I mean, um, I, I grew up in Alberta, where it is a statutory holiday, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, um, I, I I thought it was nice to have the day off, uh, and you know, it was a day that I actually used to. Uh, to participate in in the services, but I know that uh, you know a lot of people just treat it as a day off, uh, and so it uh, you know it, it does get tricky that way. And there were uh, a lot of people who who just used uh, the overtime to to get in some extra time at work. Uh, so I mean, for myself, I I would appreciate getting the day off, and and I like that I'm a graduate student who can take the day off. Um, but uh, you know, not everybody has that that. Uh, and I think just recently a bill was passed through Parliament uh, trying to make uh, Remembrance Day a national statutory holiday. So we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. You're, uh, the, the discussion's kind of nipping at a recent, uh, a recent discussion on a very old uh, long conversation that's been going on. Um, I was talking to Steve right before we went on the radio and I said that if you pulled a Canadian out from November 11th, 1971 and drop them into today, the way that they conceive of Remembrance Day and the way that we conceive of Remembrance Day would be very different. Yes. Could you explain that a little bit? Well, I mean, uh, so certainly at the moment, you know, uh, Remembrance Day ceremonies are better attended than they were, say, in the 1970s or even in the 1990s. Uh, and I think, you know, looking at the short term with uh, Canada's involvement in Afghanistan, uh, there's definitely a greater awareness of the sacrifices of the uh, the Canadian forces, and I think there's certainly a public desire to 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 want to to engage with that in some kind of meaningful way. And so there's definitely some recent reasons for why it is that Remembrance Day ceremonies are so much better attended. But um, because I read a lot of Australian historians who have their own kind of uh, memory of the First World War. Uh, 
who, who have studied this over the long term, uh, there are far more kind of layers to, to this phenomenon than just uh, the war in Afghanistan. So there's, there's a lot of moving parts uh, that, that can be traced back to, to the 1970s. Um, but yeah. It's really interesting that um, you say that. I, I, for me at least, always remember Day has been a big deal to mm-hmm. me since the early 90s when I was in school and we would spend basically two weeks or even more like working on art and poems and mm-hmm. making poppies and making huge displays and the whole day pretty much in school would be spent um, talking about uh, Remembrance Day and World War One. so I'm kind of surprised actually like I've never heard until today that there was the, that there is this growing trend toward people attending Remembrance Day ceremonies so like I really had no clue oh yeah um, a, a generation ago a Canadian your average Canadian might not even have known what Vimy Ridge was about if you like Vimy Ridge was something that was really only known amongst like World War One historians until fairly recently like in the last 20 years or so so has there been like a real push in the school system within Ontario and and I guess other pro- provincial governments to really stress World War One um, and and Canadian history or like what's the what's the change there because for me mm-hmm. growing up it, it was it was a no brainer I thought everybody knew about it I mean there was McRae Avenue in the neighborhood that I went to school in mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I thought it was actually probably named after John McRae right. like I. To me, it was just this part of everyday life. Um, and I mean, I was talking with my girlfriend earlier in the day, actually, about wearing poppies. And, and I've been wearing one for the last couple of weeks. And mm-hmm. I see people on the street wearing them. And she said, oh, don't you just wear that today? And I said, well, I, I don't think so. I, right. I've always historically done it for a long time. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, I like I said, most of my knowledge of this uh, comes from Australian researchers, uh, and one of the things that they've noticed in Australia in, in the, the resurgence of their own version of Remembrance Day, which is Anzac Day, celebrated in April, um, is uh, there was an, an effort by uh, a conservative government, John Howard's government in the 1990s, to uh, appropriate funds to the Department of Veterans Affairs, which would then use those funds to um, encourage the commemoration and, and the education uh, of the Australia's history of the First World War in schools. Uh, and so they would create resources for teachers to, to plug into their curriculum so that they would have uh, better resources to talk about the First World War. Um, they could uh, make resources available so that people could um, Either or so that, that students could either research uh, their own family member who had fought in the First World War, or just uh, any uh, Australian soldier uh, to, to learn more about their experience. Uh, and really, this was a response to kind of the the decline of, of Anzac Day in Australia, largely because um, Anzac Day, and I think Remembrance Day in Canada, had. Uh, just been kind of something for veterans and uh, the wartime generation who had lost somebody overseas. Uh, and as the veterans of the First World War started passing away and the veterans of the Second World War started aging, uh, there, there, there became this push to um, 
involve the younger generations into uh, Anzac Day. And so the way that they did this was encouraging uh, a personal connection to the war by uh, sort of, you know, the, the kinds of activities that you were describing. Uh, so it's not, uh, I mean, from what I remember from growing up in Canada, it seems like we've had that same, um, that same upbringing. Uh, and it is one of those things that contributes to, 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 to the resurgence of, of Remembrance Day within the last 10 years. Yeah, and it's odd because it is kind of uh, themed around the First World War, mm-hmm. which is really odd because Canada and the Anzac forces got into a much bigger conflict not that much longer later. Right. But it doesn't seem to get the same gravity mm-hmm. as the First World War, and I'm, I've always been curious as to why that is. Yeah, uh, I mean... Th- that's uh, anyone's guess. Uh, I know that uh, you know Remembrance Day was originally in Canada known as Armistice Day, uh, and uh, there was very much a push to to change it to Remembrance Day. Uh, largely, uh, I think uh, uh, Arthur Currie was was one of the proponents of changing it to Remembrance Day specifically so that it doesn't become just the commemoration of the First World War; that it it actually encompasses all of Canada's conflicts. Um, but you're right that everything. Uh, has remained rooted in the First World War, and I think it's because, uh, you know, it's a much more cryptic war. I think, like you know, we know we World War Two was a, a, a war to, to defeat Nazism uh, and and to to, to to do all these good things. Uh, it was an, operationally, it was, a, it was a very clear war of, of maneuver and such. Uh, you know. The First World War is, you know, trench warfare, the mud, the Somme. Uh, it, I think it's still very cryptic, and I think it still captures people's imaginations. And I think that's why it remains uh, the, the central focus point of Remembrance Day. That's a great way to finish. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Right. Thank you very much. And I'd like to point out, uh, I may look very unpatriotic not wearing my poppy, but uh, it does not go well over the fresh tattoo. I wanted to shout out the Inquiry. Uh, great place to get a tattoo if anybody's thinking about it. I'm going to get a white poppy for next year. They do, they do specials for Remembrance Day. They had a special today, $11, and you could get a poppy in oh for, for Remembrance Day. All right. So, uh, Gradcast, official podcast, or so official radio show of SOGS. It will be a podcast one of these days. Uh, if you want to come on the show or if you have any feedback, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And shout out to the Twitter, at gradcastradio. And I have been, I'm with Tristan. And uh, Alex and Tyson and everybody else will join you again next week. Have a good one. That's all for this week. If you want to send us some feedback or if you want to come on the show yourself, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Be sure to hook us up on social media. On Twitter, we're at gradcastradio. And look up Gradcast Radio also on Facebook. If you want to subscribe to the podcast, the podcast is located at gradcast.podbean.com. And it's on iTunes. And while you're there, why don't you leave us a review? It really helps us out. We'll see you guys next week.